I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. I'm excited to be back to share with you a conversation I had with the photographer Catherine Opie. I think for many of you, Kathy will need no introduction. She's remained at the forefront of American photography for decades, and her work has played a critical role in redefining the way that we think about American identity and culture. Uh, I spoke to Kathy at a a very particular time. Um, It was the end of September uh, 2020. We spoke just a few days after the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And uh, almost simultaneously, we learned that the police officers who killed Breonna Taylor would not be charged. Um, It was a tough week, and I think there are moments in our conversation where you hear that come through. Uh, And I thought it would be helpful to to share a bit of context about when we spoke, just so the moments when we talk about those things uh, feel a little bit more present. I also spoke with Kathy right as she returned from a road trip to drop off her son at college, uh, a trip that she also used to create a new body of work in which she visited the sites of Confederate monuments, some removed and uh, many still standing. Kathy actually kept a daily travelogue uh, that she made on this trip in collaboration with Lehman Maupin, and I highly recommend you see it before listening to this episode. It really provides a lot of insight into her practice and just kind of who she is as a person and her perspective on some of these um, really charged sites. Uh, so you can find that at leanmopin.com. Here I am with Kathy Opie. So you did you just dropped him off at college, correct? We did. August um, 11th, we got to... New Orleans. We left in the RV on August 3rd. And then on the 12th, Julie and I headed out until the 29th and drove 7,000 miles. And I made hundreds of photographs that I'm editing through now. Did you ever settle on a name for the RV? Uh, I think it's still squeaky. I, I don't <laughs> think we have a name yet. Uh, we, she, it's still got to be revealed to us. Yeah. You know, I, it's actually a great place to, to jump in because I wanted to talk about this this road trip and um of course you had sort of a a a motive to drop off your son at college congratulations by the way i feel like that's a pretty big milestone yes it is but you know do you want to tell me a little bit about this this trip and what you were searching for and what spurred that that uh that to action yeah i think that you know in terms of the history of photography and especially that i you know somewhat think about american identity and you know, issues around identity and communities have been a very strong hold of interest of mine through many bodies of work. And I was thinking about 1999 when I did the road trip from New York to California and uh, kind of based it around Americana in relationship to Y2K happening. Mm-hmm. That we're going to all of a sudden lose all our information come January 1st, you know, yeah. 20, yeah. <laughs> 2000. And so with everything that's happened this year, it just warranted bearing witness a little bit in my mind because I was being so influenced by what the photojournalists were doing. And that was kind of how I was getting all my news, as most of us were Mm -hmm. in terms of being, you know, in lockdown and so forth. 
And, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting thing like journalism and it's an utterly important thing. And I'm so thankful to photojournalists, but there's also a way I think of looking at uh, this country under other ways besides trying to get the shot that mm -hmm. creates the iconic moment and caption for what the reporters are talking about. And so I just uh, decided because we had to drop Oliver off, wouldn't it be good for me to go out and do a little bearing witness myself in relationship to, the, you know, so far the working title of the body of work is 2020. Yeah. So just like 1999, there's all these different iterations of it, like the notion of 2020 vision, what 2020 in this year has given us, which is just one bit of grief after another. Mm -hmm. Today, we hear that the officers in Louisville will not be charged mm -hmm. for murder. You know, I went to Louisville and photographed Breonna Taylor's memorial site. Mm. So a lot of my bearing witness uh, kind of surrounded around Confederate monuments and, and the, you know, kind of the incredible division and we find our country in. So I, I really started to think about, you know, because I was dropping him off in the South and I had spent some time in the South photographing swamps and my wife is from Louisiana and spent her whole life there about just the relationship of uh, the South and Confederacy and monuments. So I kind of started this uh, journey to explore what has been taken down, what remains, the memorial sites that have been put up in relationship to, um, you know, the incredible devastation within the African American community, as well as other communities mm -hmm. in terms of, um, of the our justice system system and police force and you know in between those moments my wife and i were also staying in state parks so mm -hmm. this kind of one of the things that the news gives you is these kind of you know very specific binary narratives right if you switch between fox news and msnbc you're going to hear uh you know completely different dialogue mm -hmm. But what happens with the idea of the, of the land that we rest on, this land called America, and its notion of democracy and its fragility of it, and how do you try to make sense of that through a road trip? <laughs> mm -hmm. which is a really big thing to try to make sense of. Yeah. And I think I'm still trying to make sense of it. I'll continue to go out and photograph. I'll photograph up until January. So now we have the upcoming election. I was going to head up to Portland, but I don't know if I'm going to head up to Oregon now because of all the devastation of the fires on the West Coast. Yeah. And I don't think it's very cool to go into a community with potentially 500,000 displaced people mm -hmm. and take up any more space, even yeah. though I, you know, it's just not, it's not right ethically in my mind. Yeah. But I'm, I'm traversing and I'm poking and I'm exploring and I'm thinking about, you know, what is the, the position of um, ideas around a documentary practice in relationship to the times that we're living in and really just trying to to poke and prod at that a bit i suppose this idea of traveling and documenting i mean i think the you know really that notion of documentary photography seems pretty 
uh, central to you. I'm curious how you relate to this kind of, I don't want to call it road trip photography because that's not really what I mean, but this idea of taking to the road to see the country, to make work in that, in that way. How do you relate to that tradition? Because it's, you know, it's obviously has such presence in the history of photography. I think it's a really important um, presence. I think that, you know, one of the things that I've noticed within my own teaching mm -hmm. is that people are willing to go out and kind of make photographs of the real world, so to speak. Uh, for a long time, I saw predominantly work constructed in studios. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, in, in a certain way, with the fact that everybody has a a camera at this point that they carry with them, mm -hmm. which is such a source of bearing witness in terms of trying to be seeking the truth of a given moment, especially in terms of, of unruly um, police. Mm. I think it's important for us to remember that photography can be a medium that is descriptive of our times and that that has been so prevalent within the history of photography and important to really keep kind of pushing with and it, it's a it's a hard thing to do you know it's um at times i question it like what am i you know who am i to be going out and making these photographs yeah yeah but at the same time i've always done that i mean if you look through you know my practice always even from when i was a kid i was always trying to make sense of what was around me mm -hmm. and so i think that that is partially what's going on is that I'm trying to answer some questions that I have as well in terms of uh, the validity of a documentary practice, yeah. um, especially as a white woman who's almost 60 in this time period. Yeah. How do you, what about formally speaking? I mean, when you, when you set out to do this kind of a project, do you find that you're almost creating the, the, you know, sort of the style of the work, the, the approach to photographing, I mean, take, you know, take a memorial, right. Or a, or a monument, you know, there's sort of a million ways that you can do that. How do you kind of start to feel out the, the approach? And do you find that that's a very, a very linear thing or, or does it sort of unfold as you, as you shoot more and more? Uh, it, it, you know, I think that it's experiential, right? Mm. I think you start out with an idea, like a concept. And so one of the things that I did was like map out from the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Confederate monuments, because it's a live Google map and uh, just kind of trace the roots of that. And then like, you know, obviously couldn't hit all the sites. Mm -hmm. And I think then, then it's the in-between moments too. But what, you know, the fact that at one point, because so many of these monuments, fortunately, are being taken down. There are all these different ways that states do it, which also has its own specificity of identity in relationship to removal. Yeah. And I just find that structurally really interesting, because what does that say to kind of a history of also uh, structural racism within our culture? And by kind of looking at that just in terms of its, uh, its form and shape of location, um, I don't know. I find, I find that that's intriguing, but then also I often talk within my own work about that place of pause where 
it's like you can have this really maybe you know really intense like amazing portrait but then there's an abstract landscape and so in between that are those road trip photographs of the sun setting in kentucky as you're going down a road mm. or um a body of water looking out at the ohio river with bird feeders and because again i think that in terms of journalism you don't ever really get to have the pause and ideologically we all need a little bit of a pause just because it is so divisive and and to think that democracy is this fragile Mm. is is i'm still taking it all in because every day is like another piece of bad news in my mind you know it's like okay well you know rbg is gone yeah. and wow they're really going to immediately try to put another justice on the supreme court even though everything they said with blocking obama and and then i'm just wondering where is within the landscape where is a potential place where we can actually somehow come together at this point yeah that's hard to figure out it's interesting you brought up like the you know you were having this almost dual experience of you know staying on national parkland which i feel like is something that is very uh inclusive at this moment you know like like that's some that is something that we can kind of treasure and and come together around and then the other you know obviously the other side of your journey is this incredibly divisive you know these divisive uh uh statues and and sites of of loss you know Exactly. And there's like, there's a place that I went to called Johnson shut-ins, which was like one of the most kind of remarkable landscapes that I have, um, that I've seen. Mm -hmm. It's an old volcanic and shut-ins are considered like, you know, these moments where water goes down into another pool of water and, you know, and just like that landscape alone of the idea that how long the earth took to even develop that place where people went to get out of the heat. And that in that crowd was an incredible diverse selection of probably political beliefs. And Mm. so, you know, in the end, it is like trying to use that larger notion of humanity which people just are having a really tough time wrapping their heads around these days uh to try to create more of a dialogue i suppose you know in the context of this work that you're talking about where you're traveling and you're you know as you call it bearing witness how do you think about portraiture versus you know a landscape or a uh you know architecture you know do you make a decision from the start that it's going to be images of of people or just uh, uh, an idea about landscape? Well, I think before I would empty out the landscape, especially in bodies of work like American cities or the Mm -hmm. freeways, that it was about an emptying out of a place. Yeah. I would say even 19, um, I believe 1999 in that body of work, there was only one figure. Mm. But then there's moments that happen. Like I went to Duke to the chapel because there was a removed Confederate monument uh, inside the chapel at Duke. Uh, The chapel was locked. Duke was kind of shut down to a certain extent, the Mm -hmm. Duke University. 
But on the footsteps is a young black photographer photographing. He had a soft box and everything. <laughs> and the background is the chapel, which existed behind it, you know, at one point a Confederate monument. And there she is with her young daughter, uh, a young African-American woman with her young daughter, uh, hold, and the daughter's holding up a sign saying, Mom, you did it in a graduation gown. Mm-hmm. So that becomes the picture versus the emptied out site of, of the monument, because isn't that more poignant in terms of uh, uh, an optimism yeah. that we can change things somehow, you know, yeah. uh, that things can change. And that's the hard thing that I'm not finding is a certain kind of optimism yeah. in this moment of 2020. So, so there's, there's things like that that begin to happen in the body of work that are completely not planned, but the figure just happened to emerge because that was what was happening at that moment. And so there's definitely, I would say that there's definitely more kind of figures within this. I don't know if you would call them portraits in the way that I think about portraiture. Mm -hmm. Like they're not portraits like the football portraits or surfer portraits or other portraits I've done. But the figure is in the landscape, Yeah, I would say. It's interesting, that idea of optimism, right? I mean, of course, it's uh, it's difficult at moments. But would you say that you're trying to make, would you, tra- would you say that your work is optimistic or that you're trying to send that kind of a signal? I, th- I think that throughout all the bodies of work, there's a bit of that. I mean, even mm-hmm. in, uh, in and around home. You know, the last two images in that body of work, and that also was a body of work where I was going back to kind of my street photography roots and bearing witness and thinking about what that meant. And it was definitely in conversation with 1999. Um, But I would, you know, at the end, the two last pictures in that work, the first one is an LAPD helicopter over above my house because it was constant surveillance in relationship to the LAPD. Mm-hmm. But then what follows it is a rainbow kite in the air that my neighbor was flying. And so, yeah, you have to have, I think, to some point to continue to exist within this climate of just extremes, really, quite frankly, um, a bit of optimism. Yeah. And that idea of the pause, as you're talking about, like this, you yeah. know, it seems like that's almost like a, you know, a visual rhyme, but obviously very different messages with those pictures. Yeah, like in terms of a juxtaposition, what happens when you have, you know, a body of water at sunset with this kind of empty twig coming out of it. And then next to it, you would see all of the dirt collected from uh, lynchings at the uh, Peace and Justice Memorial. And so those kind of juxtapositions are important because uh, just as the body holds memory, the land holds memory. And that memory then is also still profoundly debated within the minds of people. They might be able to say, yeah, no, slavery is bad, but yet they haven't taken an anti-racist stance whatsoever, Hmm. not understanding how the land holds this. I mean, were you ever thinking about being a journalist? Was that kind of the the square one? No, you couldn't really be a photojournalist as a woman. Yeah. I mean, you had people like Susan Mizilis and Mary Ellen Mark, but they were also fine art photographers. Mm-hmm. But in, in actually, when I picked up a camera and 
what I wanted to do in high school is I wanted to be a, um, you know, I wanted to make films. But when I looked at the statistics of women who were able to actually be behind the camera, uh, it was so little that I thought, well, I could try to do commercial photography. And there was a moment where I thought that because my brother had joined the Marines, I mean, the Air Force, I was thinking, because I didn't go straight into college out of high school, I was like, well, maybe I join the Marines and get training to be a photographer through the Marines. And then all my friends were like, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't be a Marine, you know, and this is 1979. And, uh, and so I just went up into the mountains and started teaching sixth grade outdoor education and then I finally, you know, decided to do the art school. But when I first picked up a camera at nine, it was definitely within the documentary tradition. But whenever I looked up statistics of potential jobs, it, I was left being, being highly disappointed and feeling like, oh, there's not going to be any doors open for me here. Yeah. And so, again, I have to think as she lays uh, lay in her coffin on the steps of the Supreme Court, um, RBG for, you know, making a, the world definitely a lot better for women. Yeah. It's interesting that that was such a early consideration, like factored into how you wanted to move forward and how you wanted to proceed. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved making images and I, you know, I was very, my mom was an old movie buff. So there was always in yeah. the basement in Ohio, like some fantastic old movie on TV. And she spent a good portion of her time. And, you know, when we were outdoors playing, like in her lazy boy chair, knitting Irish fisherman sweaters for us and, and, and watching old movies and, um, all of that was, you know, why I wanted, I thought, oh man, it would be really amazing to be able to be behind a camera. Is the spark still there in terms of, of making films? Is No, not really. I mean, I made a documentary called Same Difference with my friend Lisa Udelson. And those kids that are, you know, talking about their parents' parents' marriage being taken away from the state of California, which we could all be facing right now our mm. marriages being taken away because of what's going to happen with the supreme court oh not like i haven't been through it before um but uh i uh i made that and it was really pleasurable to frame it and i really like framing kind of talking head body portraits mm -hmm. uh but filmmaking is a highly collaborative process and I think that I enjoy the solitude of my practice, to tell you the truth. The control of it. Yeah, I guess the control <laughs> of the solitude. That's what you yeah, really mean. We could, we could say that, absolutely. Yeah, I like the control. <laughs> but no, but I don't mean that to be a bad thing. I mean, you know what I'm saying? No, the, the it's, kind a, no of, it's true. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, uh, the yeah. Person, the person, uh, the, ex the personal expression of it. Yeah, and obviously there's filmmakers that do that and that I love. I mean, when I think about Chantal Ackerman's films yeah, of or course. Agnes Varda, uh, I mean, there are so many women who I'm completely inspired by who obviously maintain the control, but you always need a crew, mm -hmm. you know? You just, you know, I remember when I was making The Modernist and it, because it's all still photographs, 
like I didn't need multiple cameras. I just had had Stosh, my friend Pigpen, do the movements again, and then I just changed my position and shot it. And mm-hmm. I think that um, I just really, really like having a camera in my hand. It was interesting. I was reading the New York Times recent interview with Gregory Crutzen, who said that he hasn't even held a camera for years. and that it's all directing and i was and i i think that that um that would be really hard for me because i like framing things and thinking about the framing of things and all of that i'm somewhat of a formalist when it comes to photography and all of that is like super important to me to control yeah it's always been very calming for me having a camera in hand it is It, it just feels also that i can participate in something that I feel that I have a lot of confidence with after spending, you know, most of my life trying to make images, but there's also this, like, uh, it's a language. It's like a writer to a certain extent, writing another novel. It's like each body of work begins to peel away these different things that I'm thinking about. And the culmination of that, it keeps me really engaged. And I think engagement is utterly important to feel that you have a voice in your own life and in your own thoughts that you're putting forth and that you're trying to stand behind. It's great that you brought up the modernist because I have I have so many questions about this and okay. the yeah. modernist seems like a very different sort of project because there's so much of a an element of narrative and almost like a you know there's a fiction behind this and yeah. it, you know that seems like a big a big jump when when thinking about the rest of your work in context. So where did where did this idea of this narrative come from? And what was the what was the initial treatment of it? Well, it initially came into my mind around actually 94, 95. And it had this whole other different kind of pseudo sexual side to it, which once um, I got going on the body of work, I kind of cut the whole uh, original ending out. Uh, because it didn't make sense in the times that we were living in, and I needed it to become more of a, a political piece, quite frankly, yeah. and uh, for it to not have an ending, but have more of a, 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 a kind of a dr- keep it in a dreamlike state, so to speak, that was dealing with real issues. I mean, yeah, uh, Pigpen did not burn down any modernist houses. <laughs> But there were massive fires happening in California for yeah. multiple years, as they still are. Yeah. Um, we also, those houses represented a utopic vision. We had Trump running for president at that point in time, which delivered a nostalgia, uh, kind of a nostalgic position on on America and what it was and how to make it great again, you know? And uh, and then also we had the incredible wealth disparity in terms of Los Angeles and and the, you know, 55,000 people living on the streets. And so many of my artist friends struggling whether or not they can even afford to live in this city anymore, where L.A. was always a city where artists could come and get space that was really affordable. And so all of these things went through my mind in terms of being embedded within the piece, but the piece was really different in 95. And then as I was finally getting around to making it, um, 
I realized that the 95 version was the 95 version of me yeah. and uh, that, that that wasn't who I was anymore. And so I left it without the original ending. Um, what was the, uh, can you tell me what the, what the nature <laughs> yeah. of the change was? I'm curious. Yeah, it was big. I mean, a huge change. Um, so there was a woman, the, the ending is, is that Pigpen uh, burns down, you know, the houses and uh, there's a character called Madam. And Madam uh, really like was tra tracking this because her house she felt was going to be next. Mm. So she figured out that, uh, that the houses were being burnt down in the order that they were being built. So she meets him at a site and injects him and then kidnaps him in her limousine, her chauffeur, takes it you know it was a chauffeur all dressed in leather it was like badass leather dyke me you know yeah, yeah, yeah. the ending and so and then uh takes him to her modernist house where she had built a cage in the middle of her glass house and then he had to rebuild all and she was obsessed with him too because you know um there was a lot of desire about you know from madam to pig pen and so i can't believe i'm telling you this <laughs> i love it i know it's because it's because when i the the modernist is one of those stories where i was thinking you know like where did this like like how do you come up with this as a character you know this 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 arsonist who's you know and i mean it's interesting i i would i would have never guessed that it that it came from 1995 yeah, so then what happens is, you know, the chauffeur is actually in love with Madam, a woman chauffeur, by the way. So it's all queer. It's all very queer. And, uh, and uh, Madam is making um, him, uh, Pigpen, rebuild all of the structures. And that's why you had the models being burnt in my backyard, because we had, I had made these models for the ending of the film but then it didn't really fit in but i still like the idea of burning the models yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you couldn't put them to waste couldn't put them to waste i had, I had an artist built them for me uh -huh. <laughs> and so um and so one day the chauffeur the ending was going to be that the chauffeur ended up uh burning um giving a, a pig pen a match that still had a head on it so then pig pen burns down all the models in the cage in the glass house hmm. and then madam burns down but then there was another kind of rear window aspect to the story in which there were two dykes living in the guest house who were doing a whole voyeuristic thing of photographing this relationship in the cage and then bringing them to UCLA to have me critique the photographs for art <laughs> class. So it was like this really big convoluted uh, yeah. uh, thing that I was going to work on. But in the end of the day with all the news and Trump and everything, and it just ended up being for me more political and more poetic mm. to uh leave uh pig pen as either a hero or a villain get the 95 version out of my head <laughs> well, it's, it's clearly it's clearly still in there i don't know it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty good alternate it, you know there there was such a a crazy element to that where 
I feel like even when when that show was up, I think on the front page that was, I suppose, the midst of the the huge fires in Los Angeles, right? I mean, I think I remember yeah. seeing the press release of that show, and then simultaneously having the front page of the New York Times, and it was you know Los Angeles burning, and then it was your show, and I was thinking, this is so crazy. Like, how is there? How is this happening all at the same time? And it, it really had has this element of the uncanny. Yeah, L.A. burns every year. I mean, one woman left the gallery yelling, this is disgusting. How could this artist make this? These houses are treasures, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, but it's more complicated than just treasures. Don't you understand they became treasures because of our relationship to nostalgia? Yeah. And don't we have to re-question nostalgia to a certain extent because we don't live in that time period anymore? There aren't going to be any more case study houses built that people can actually afford. Hmm. These are rarefied sculptures now that people live in. And so I just, yeah, that's, I just wanted it to be more about what we're all facing in these urban areas at this point with pretty much unaffordable housing. Yeah. It's, you know, the last time we were in Los Angeles, we, we visited the 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 Neutra VDL house and oh yeah it's and it's it's amazing you know it's amazing and 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 I mean obviously these these houses are, are beautiful but it's crazy to think that they it was designed as a low cost living solution you know it was meant to be this yeah. very accessible thing some some things seem to be um, kind of off the table in terms of uh, historical reexamination when I think of modernism I think of these as you said utopian principles you know design principles things that we carry with us and we want to bring with us but of course it's like make America great again and it does have that that dark side and that um, that kind of troubling side of nostalgia to it yeah so I mean with you know with and and also I mean we have to also connote that this film is in conversation with Chris Marker's La Jetée. And that was the 95 version, too, that I was in conversation because it was a love story, too. Mm -hmm. So it didn't end up being a love story this time. But, you know, Marker's film is Elijah is is about um, nuclear war and the destruction and a loss of love. And uh, and so um, so his is about uh, looking towards the future and kind of futurism to a certain extent and uh and mine is well can is isn't the past in a certain way and this position of nostalgia also holding us in in a way that is uh maybe not not so good for our psyche and our ability to actually move forward because the past has some really big skeletons in the closet and i suppose this is also why i'm traveling and looking at confederate monuments of course you know? yeah 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 we you know we've talked about this this work that you did in 1999 and mm-hmm. you know there's a bit of a of a book ending happening in terms of uh 1999 and and 2020 what you know what you're currently shooting the other moment that like feels so striking to me in in thinking about the the arc of your work and obviously there's such a there's so many political elements to to what we're talking about is President Obama's inauguration in 2008 which Yeah, you, which I also photographed, yeah. Yeah, I I was I was curious like when you when you look at that work now, when you think about when you think about what it felt like then to be to be traveling and to be photographing in these crowds, you know, on in in DC. I mean, mm-hmm. can you kind of take me back to that moment? What did it feel like then? 
Oh, amazing. Amazing. It, it felt like um, a right, uh, something right was writing some wrongs. And even in terms of how people gathered at different monuments or statues to be photographed, and it was a reclaiming of Washington, D.C. Yeah. And even though it's a predominantly, you know, African-American uh, city um, there, I had, ne you know, it had never felt that way before. Mm -hmm. Like it didn't feel represented in that way. Mm -hmm. And, and so it was just, uh, it was utterly cold. Oh my God. I've never was so cold <laughs> as that, as, as like spending literally from, I think I left the house at four in the morning. I got an Airbnb and I was, I didn't go back into the house and I was outside the entire time, uh, till about, um, five o'clock. Mm-hmm. And so I had hand warmers and stuff, but it was, it was exhilarating to just be with everybody, but also there's contradictions in that too. You know, I mean, there's definitely contradictions. Like when you have that portrait of the boy scout picking up the discarded American flags, mm -hmm. it's like, it shows in a certain way, there are moments within that body of work that utterly also reveal the fragility of our democracy to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. that you can all of a sudden be waving that little teeny American flag with everybody in unison in celebration and then discard it. Yeah. And not that I'm not against discarding flags or using flags, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm not yeah. saying that whatsoever, but what I'm saying is it's, that was just an interesting also juxtaposition of that moment. Yeah. And, and the, yeah, uh, there's, yeah. yeah, there's something about the disposability of it in that, in that context. It's, it's strange. Yeah. Yeah. But it was incredible to make. It was a very hard body of work to edit. I made it into a portfolio because I wanted to bring back the photographer's portfolio. Uh, I mm -hmm. felt like it had kind of left a little bit like, you know, the generation of photographers that I grew up with, you know, there was a huge rich history of portfolio that you, it's almost like a photo essay, so mm -hmm. to speak. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, I, I did it in a portfolio and then also a book because I wanted the images to exist together. Yeah. The, I mean, is it, is it strange looking back on, looking back on old work? Like, I mean, that's a very specific moment. Does it, does, do those photographs feel very, uh, different to you, you know, today in context when you look back at them? Well, it's a very short period of time we're talking about. I mean, I feel really differently by looking back at, you know, the Democratic uh, uh, National Convention in San Francisco in terms of the people that showed up in homophobia. Mm. I have Mondale and Ferraro rallies. You know, I have been photographing, you know, uh, you know, since the beginning of the 80s, these different kind of moments where we come together politically and, um uh, also protests, marches. And I would say that it's more shocking looking back how quickly um, division and hatred has taken over our country from such a, optim a moment of optimism mm. and a re-reckoning. Yeah. That I was really, um, I'm very, I'm still kind of shaking my head around that and i think that's why i went out to make more pictures is like how can i go from that moment to then 
watching this unfold. Yeah. It's funny because to me that it does feel like a long time ago and that it does, it does feel, um, you know, for me, it's like, you know, probably my oldest photographs are maybe, you know, maybe 15 years old, but, uh-huh. um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know that that sounds, that sounds funny, but, uh, but it's no, true. I you like know? that. It's no, I mean, it's like my son, I was thinking about, you know, Oliver and how, Obama does seem like a really long time ago for him because he's only 18 years old. Yeah. And he would sit in the bathtub and play with his littlest pets. And he would debate Hillary Clinton with Obama on the edge <laughs> of the bathtub with his littlest pets. And, you know, and, yeah. and, and so even, you know, uh, I mean, I, I've been around the block a few times, but even then it's just like, for Oliver, he called me sobbing when uh, when uh, Ruth passed mm-hmm. on Friday because of what that means for his life, and that's that's uh, that's the tragedy of it all. Mm. Is this very small group of people with very small minds will set a precedent of authority? for uh his entire life mm-hmm. yeah does he does he photograph at all no he doesn't he uh he works with clay if he does any art he got it you know he did make all, ceramics all through high school but he's pre-med he wants to be a doctor well that's that's so, not too, that's not too bad i know i was like <laughs> julie and i were like why you're not going to be an artist yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like most parents are like, oh, no, no, don't be an artist. You need to be a doctor. We were like, really? <laughs> were you, so. were, are you, it, are you like a, like a shutter bug in the sense? Like, are you always photographing or do you, are you very deliberate with like, you're picking up a camera, you're doing your work and then, and then that's sort of its own time. Or do you always, are you always taking pictures? My, uh, yeah, I have a car camera. A car camp. I, I love that. Yeah, uh, that just lives in my car because I'm a car person here in LA. And then I have my uh, cell phone, which even in this, this new body of work 2020, for the first time, I've decided to go ahead and add cell phone photographs. That's interesting. In that body of work. Yeah. Which I really, you know, I'm, I'm a very compartmentalized person with bodies of work and everything. And I'm trying to reach a new place of embracing the practice is just the practice. Yeah. And that's, that's hard for me to do because I d- tend to think of bodies of work that I want to make and then I make them and then they end up hopefully being exhibited, which I have pretty good luck on, fortunately, as an artist. Uh, but usually I, I tend to compartmentalize um, my work and I want to try to um, open that up this time somehow. Yeah. Do you mean in the sense of like you can show a, a cell phone image next to something that feels very still and and, and you can show something... Uh, you know, in a way, it's kind of like what I was almost asking about earlier in the sense of, you know, when you when you go about uh, approaching a project, when you start a trip, when you uh, when you have a concept, you know, and, and the execution of it, you know, how rigid are your rules when you're when you're, you know, starting a project? They're always rigid, but then I always break them. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's important for artists to be in the moment. 
yeah. right? That you have a body of work, like kind of how I all of a sudden rewrote the modernist end, you know, yeah, it, yeah, was, yeah. it lived that way from 1995 until I made it in my head and that's how we were going to make it. And then I was like, edited it, it was editing at the beginning of it. And I just said to, you know, my assistant Heather, I said, guess what? We're dumping the ending. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Like what we're going through now, everything that's happening, it's got to be, uh, it, it has to have a different uh, feeling to it. Mm. And so I think it's important to have, you know, kind of parentheses on things, but then to be able to open it up as you're actually making it to rely on uh, your own kind of intuitive ability to um, meander, so to speak. Do you, do you find that you, you sort of, uh, I know teaching is such a huge part of your work. It must be so, uh, disruptive right now. Uh, I can't well, imagine. Well, fortunately but... I have a one year sabbatical Oh wow! and I planned this for my kids first year in college so that if he needed me, mm-hmm. that I could get on a plane and go to him at any moment in time, but I'm not getting on any plane. <laughs> <laughs> So even though he's potentially could get COVID, mom, mom's not going to be there, you know? Well, um, you have that RV, you know? I got the RV. I can go back on the road. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I planned the sabbatical to just, uh, A, I've never taken a one-year sabbatical. I'm 30 years now teaching, maybe even more, but I would just round it off to 30. And this is the first time I've ever taken a year off. And I, I have this amazing opportunity as well. Um, the uh, Robert Maplethorpe Foundation is um, supporting me to go to the American Academy in Rome in May. And uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm kind of doing a really different thing there than what I'm trying to do now in 2020 yeah. with this body of work, uh, because I'm going to be looking at something that I look at a lot with various bodies of work, but I'm really fascinated by Vatican City as a site that has its own governance within a major historic city. Yeah. And how do those histories collide? And what can I try to do with that and and see if I can actually get access to make images there? I, I you know, I'd be super curious to hear what that what that process is like i don't know part of me thinks the door slams slams closed like very um uh uh, difficult to gain access but then the other part of me thinks that maybe there's a little bit of a a new push a new age and there there is kind of an opening of that I, i i wouldn't know what to expect in that in that context yeah and also it's it you know the proposal that they'll give to whoever at the vatican who looks at proposals it's not photographing the Vatican, you know, as if it's like the Vatican, you know, mm-hmm. it's like about the, it's, you know, I think of it in some ways as a portrait of the place that yeah. of what I'll have access to if I have any. And it, I guess it's kind of like how I thought about Elizabeth Taylor to a certain extent is oh, yeah. here's this highly iconic movie star, but yet there's the feel of it being also a place that can be personal yeah I and lo- this yeah. is you know this is a highly symbolic probably one of the most symbolic places that i can imagine in terms of obviously uh catholicism mm-hmm. uh but um when you think of israel or other highly symbolic places you know how do those places hold also a history of 
of of people or uh, a person or you know what what happens to the electrical cords you know <laughs> it's not all michelangelo's ceiling yeah yeah <laughs> so, yeah so i don't know i don't know what i'll get or if they'll even let me or anything but it just so happens that their theme this year at the uh, academy is the city and I didn't even know that that was the theme when I had told them what I wanted to try to work on. So mm -hmm. I think it's going to work really well, hopefully. Well, it sounds like you have one or two things to work on. Yeah, a few <laughs> things to work on. A few things. It's always good. I mean, it, it's very hard for me not to be working, actually. I like it a lot. I think that maybe I've produced too much work, but it's just what I do. It's kind of like breathing. I look forward to seeing it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Kathy, thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you, and have a great night. I'd like to thank Catherine Opie and her entire team, as well as the team at Lehman Maupin in New York. You can see a lot of Kathy's work at LehmanMaupin.com, including her two recent shows, Rhetorical Landscapes and The Modernist. Our show is produced by Sarah Levine, and our music is by Jack Neliza. I'll talk to you soon.